0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988.
1: Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
2: From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott.
3: This week we talk with Susan Jacobs, the music supervisor for HBO's Sharp Objects. It's her job to pick songs that elevate the visuals to another level.
4: It's always about what's conveying the emotion that the director wants to convey. It's, you know, I always tell people music is a point of view. Our job as supervisors is to make sure that everybody's understanding the different points of view that are possible.
2: Plus, we'll review new albums from Prince and singer-songwriter Sam Phillips. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions.
3: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and uh, later in the show, Jim, we're going to talk with Susan Jacobs. She's an Emmy-winning music supervisor. That means she's the person that picks the songs you hear in shows like uh, Sharp Objects and Big Little Lies. She's also been the music supervisor for a number of movies, working with people like Spike Lee, David O. Russell, on and on. And on. She'll talk with us about how she decides what's the perfect song
2: for every scene and how she got
3: Led Zeppelin, of all people, to agree to their music being
2: used. That's coming up later in the show, Greg, but first, we've got some new music.
0: Never meant to cause you any sorrow Never meant to cause you pain
3: That is a snippet of Purple Rain. Everybody knows that song, right? Oh, yeah. The Great Prince, as you can tell, a very sparse, uh, stripped-down version uh, in its initial stages of Purple Rain. These are demo recordings uh, done in Prince's house before there was a Paisley Park even, uh, sitting at a piano with a microphone and working out songs. And that's the name of the new posthumous Prince album, Piano and a Microphone, 1983. What a career he's had uh, since his death in 2016. The vaults have become uh, open to the public. We'll see uh, what this produces because in the past we've seen... uh, some uh, some vault uh, projects, uh, the Jimi Hendrix estate, uh, the Doors, etc. Since Jim Morrison's death, where there's been a ton of recordings coming out uh, posthumously, uh, that is starting to happen now with Prince's music as well. We're going to evaluate uh, the the merits of this project, but first uh, let's play a track from it. It's a track called "Mary, Don't You Weep." Uh, the Great. Uh, 19th century spiritual Mm -hmm. that has been in the gospel canon for centuries as performed by Prince from Piano and a Microphone, 1983, on Sound Opinions. (laughs) ¶¶
2: Prince with a piano and a microphone Mm. in 1983. Covering Mary, Don't You Weep. Uh, I don't think he tops Aretha Franklin's version on Amazing Grace. But it is an extraordinary uh, version of that song, Greg. Uh, You neglected to say it was recorded by an engineer, this album, Piano and a Microphone, 1983, on cassette. Mm -hmm. And at one point, you can hear Prince talking about, you got to flip that over now, right? Cassette, kids, was an antiquated uh, technology. Oh, never mind. Um, You know, I am saddened by what is certain to be 40 or 50 years of posthumous grave robbing of Prince's vaults. Would he have released this? I don't know. Is there interest there for people who love Prince? Absolutely. You know, the stakes are not high. He's playing for the joy of playing. You can see songs develop. Uh, You can see sides of his personality, as with Mary, Don't You Weep. I also really love the unreleased song Cold coffee and cocaine.
5: Last time, baby, I eat over your place. That's all I get is uh, a cup of cold coffee, cocaine.
2: Uh, Prince heads, talk about his Jamie Starr character, right? You know, the street hustler, the wiser. You know, all right. You know, Mary and, and and Cold Coffee and Cocaine are the only revelations here. This is not a great lost Prince album like, say, the Black album. The hard funk record he had to shelve in 1987, we all scoffed it up on bootlegs, didn't come out officially till 1994. Are there equivalents like that in in these vaults? I don't know. There are revelations here. I just don't know if I'll ever listen to it again. You know, I disagree with the I'll never listen to it again, Remark. I
3: mean, that's your taste. My initial reaction to this record was that it was uh, it was kind of a throwaway. Okay, what's, what's this all about? Why is this even coming out? And the more I listened to it, I sort of got pulled into the idea that we're getting a window into process here, and we so seldom got that with Prince, Um, You know, he was very big on releasing finished records. In fact, there's uh, tons of finished records in his vaults that haven't come out. Uh, So why this one? He hadn't made Purple Rain yet. You know, he's on the cusp of something really extraordinary, but we're seeing how his mind works. And what I loved most about hearing this is his virtuosity as a pianist, uh, first of all, uh, and the joy he brings to the performances. The fact that he seems to be so unfiltered and realizing, hey, I'm just sort of, messing around here just yeah. following my mind letting it wander uh, it's pretty fascinating I mean there's basically a, a a 30 minute string of unbroken music here where he's just flowing yeah. one piece into the next you know a snippet of purple rain a snippet of Joni Mitchell
0: In my body, like holy wine, so
2: that
3: Great gospel track that we just played. Which, by the way, he totally reinvents. Yeah, it goes I mean, somewhere. Yeah, he, he has, takes
2: it out of church. There's no he biblical. He takes it to sc- Saturday night. The yeah. biblical
3: scripture isn't there anymore. And Mary's now a real person. Who's yeah. uh, your lover's not going to come home, Mary? Right, Mary, don't you weep? You know, he's uh, he's talking about some other subjects there. He's blending the sacred and the and the profane.
5: Mama, don't you move.
0: Got
3: a bad, bad man ain't uh, so I love that aspect, and, I, and I'm glad you mentioned cold coffee and cocaine. You know, uh, Jamie Starr is just another way of saying, <laughs> I'm ripping off James Brown here. Now, I'm not going to recommend this to everybody, uh, but, man, if you're a Prince fan... This is this is manna from heaven, as the man might say. Yeah, But
2: if somebody spent two years and went through what is alleged to be, you know, a treasure trove in the vault yeah. and just found those Mary, don't you weeps yeah. um, and, and gave us a whole album of that, you know, instead, this is going to be, you know, he's going to be putting out records, you know, longer than he was alive.
3: <laughs> no doubt about it. There's going to be hundreds of Prince records before we're, we're all gone.
5: Our mistakes have made us They say we made of stars I spent all my disbelief on you And how far We made it before it all came apart It's amazing what a girl can do With half a heart
2: Greg, that is a little bit of a song called World on Sticks, the title track of the 10th album by Sam Phillips, her first record in five years. Sam Phillips has had a fascinating life and career, began writing songs as a teenager, and came to the world as a Christian artist in the mid-'80s. In the late-'80s and the early-'90s, she left that World behind, but not her religion. She's always been fascinated in philosophy and in fundamentalism. She hooked up with and married T Bone Burnett, the great producer. And we got a string of uh, really beloved albums The Indescribable Wow, Cruel Inventions, Martinis and Bikinis, wonderful power pop records. So that's the second phase of her career. I would say she had a third phase in the early 2000s, recording for none such records. Dabbling with a lot of different styles. And now, after five years' silence, she is back with World on Sticks. Um, She has long been a songwriter's songwriter. Dare I say, almost Leonard Cohen-like in her acid wit. Uh, (laughs) And merging that, though, with, with these beautiful melodies at the best throughout her canon... All of that means nothing to many of our younger listeners who will now jump up and down when I say, she also did the La 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 song in the Gilmore Girls. I think there's a whole generation of people who only know that And probably didn't even know her name mm-hmm. So Leslie Phillips uh, rechristened herself Sam Because it was a childhood nickname What is she giving us on her latest album Here is a track called How Much Is Enough By Sam Phillips on Sound Opinions
5: Someone keeps giving out the wrong numbers We're not supposed to know what's true Champagne promises only red, only blue, when they break down the doors to easy straight, will they leave anything for you? How much is enough? How much is
3: How much is enough from Sam Phillips' new record, World on Sticks? Sam Phillips doesn't release a lot of music uh, in the last few decades, Jim. She's been very uh, sparse with the amount of recording she's put out. But I would say each one of those is very carefully considered and is a small gem in its own right. And I would put this record in that category. You know, that question, how much is enough? There's a lot of questions on this record. Where will we live when they've conquered the earth? When they break down the doors to Easy Street, will they leave anything for you? This you know? is her, this is her <laughs> apocalyptic <laughs> record. Yes, yeah. this is uh, about, you know, we're on the precipice of an ecological disaster. And uh, she is going to, uh, you know, remind us of the fact that we are in a fragile place right now as a world. Our world on sticks, so brave, so small. It's a key line on the record from mm-hmm. the title track. And at the same time, you go, man, this is, sounds really oppressive. I mean, it sounds like <laughs> I'm being lectured to, or what is this going to be? But the music, she, she approaches the music with a light touch. Um, you know, she's a, she's got a great group of musicians that love to work with her, uh, especially that drummer, Jay Belrose. He's a, an incredible drummer, I think, the orchestral feel he brings to his drumming to accompany the songs. And she also plays with a small string section, the section quartet, in fact, they're called, uh, that bring a real bite to their parts. It's not just mushy and soft. Love. And and that's very uh, a very nice uh, counterpoint. Um, to the way Phillips writes songs. You know, you always get a hook or a phrase or a, a little surprise in there that sort of sticks with you long after the song is done. These are very, very sharply etched songs. There's not a wasted note on the record. You know, you, you mentioned that she's a songwriter's songwriter, and I think mm-hmm. once again... Uh, she's made the case on this
2: record. I know you're a super fan, and and I am not in a particularly grouchy mood uh, today. I just want you to know I, I'm hugely disappointed by this record. Hugely per- disappointed. Hugely disappointed. I'm a huge San Phillips fan, especially that 90s period of power pop effervescence. Uh, what she is doing here seems to me way too Tom Waits wannabe hmm. in the sense of uh, I am an eccentric who will now dabble in breakfast. Vile Cabaret.
5: They're building their dreams. The American landfill Kings, The American landfill Kings.
2: I hate that. All right, that's (laughs) what I hate about Tom Waits. Um, I disagree with you about the drumming. I think it's it's way over the top. It's distracting. The strings bug me. Uh, veering between this cabaret and this sort of Ennio Morricone thing at times. Um, I just don't think the music is up to the lyrics, which, as always, are excellent. I would have preferred to hear these uh, songs in much more stripped-down fashion, which is what she gave us on the Nonesuch Records, or in her pop mode. There are two pop gems, Tears in the Ground and how much is enough and the rest of the album uh i ain't going there with her
5: i've been having nightmares like you wouldn't believe all day long until i fall asleep
2: but as always we want to hear from you call and leave a message on our hotline 888-859-1800 give us your opinions on either of these albums or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Coming up, we talk with music supervisor Susan Jacobs about her work on the HBO series Sharp Objects and Big Little Lies. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. That guy over there is Greg Cott. And this week, our guest is Emmy-winning music supervisor Susan Jacobs. Her job as music supervisor is to carefully choose tracks for film and television that elevate the visuals to a new level beyond what's written on the page or shown on screen. Let me just name, Greg, a few of the movies Susan's worked on. She's Gotta Have It, Kansas City, Basquiat, Capote, Little Miss Sunshine, Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle, I, Tanya really love that one and we're talking about directors that range from david o russell to spike lee robert altman to m night Shyamalan. but her latest project was doing the music for the hbo miniseries sharp objects when
5: you're here
6: you're my daughter
5: everything you do comes back
0: on me i didn't come back to cause any problems
5: You hate this place
6: like me. Someone in this town's hiding something.
5: Mama says I need to be careful around you. Is true?
3: Are you dangerous? That's right, Jim. This is her second television collaboration with director Jean-Marc Valier after the HBO series Big Little Lies. So we began the interview by asking her how she got into the music supervision business.
4: You know, I got my start sort of falling, like I think most things, I fell backwards into this field. You know, my first soundtrack album credit was project managing She's Gotta Have It
6: mm-hmm. and
4: worked very closely with Spike Lee's father who did the score for that album when I was working at Island Records.
5: There's a girl that I once knew who often had a friend or two. She gave them time, love, wit, and rhyme sublime. They would come from far away and often gather there all day to show their love and see which one would stay.
4: And then I went on to management. I kind of circled around this for a long time in different directions, and by the time that I actually... Knew there was such a job as music supervision, which came from a recommendation to Julian Schnabel for Basquiat. That was the first film I ever did on my own. You know, I approached it like this is what my artist wants, Julian. This is what he wants, and I'm going to figure out a way to get all this music. To the side.
3: You know, Susan, your job essentially didn't exist for a long time. I mean, it was one of those things that sort of evolved as music and movies developed this sort of synergistic relationship. It used to be that our orchestral scores made for these movies, right? And then the job also became not only these original scores, but then the idea of, of placing songs from the pop music realm or whatever genre into the movie to sort of help develop character tone and plot. Were you kind of a fan of this art form before you actually started doing it?
4: Yeah, I used to actually play soundtrack albums. I was addicted to the swimmer, the soundtrack to the the swimmer that had the most beautiful Mervyn Hamlisch theme. ¶¶ and Spartacus, and I think my record collection had almost equally soundtrack vinyl soundtracks as it did bands. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always found that interesting, and, you know, never in a million years thought about it as a job. I didn't know that it was a job, and even when I came in, really a lot of supervisors were working directly with record labels and then putting their music into movies. where record labels were actually paying for mm-hmm, yeah. for supervisors and the music and the movies. You know, I'm just such a control freak in the fact that I don't want to be dictated backwards, but I really just always wanted the freedom to, you know, go wherever the movie and the director wanted to go and then end up having people bid on the soundtrack after that and not kind of work it in the other way because I just the being dictated to from that direction was never interesting to me.
3: I think uh, where it's evolved, too, is that it's become a much more important factor in television. And now that you've got these mini-series that are sort of viewed as art forms on the level of a a great movie, you've got this increasingly important role that music is playing in them. What intrigued you about these mini-series
4: well, my only experience, I followed my director. You know, Jean-Marc Vallier and I had worked on a couple of feature films, and he said, OK, we're going here, and I was, that was my deep dive, and came away with so much appreciation for that work. What do you look at in the ocean? What's out there?
1: It's so life.
5: Dreams. <laughs> mystery. Monsters?
2: <laughs> Who knows what lies out there beneath the surface? It's you know, something I really liked about the two HBO series you worked on Big Little Lies and Sharp Objects was that they both featured female music geeks. You know, I think too often in movies and TV, male characters are the ones who uh, are the messengers of the cool music, you know, the ones whose lives are saved by rock and roll. Uh, First, I want to talk about Chloe from Big Little Lies, who's this little six-year-old girl who loves music, and we're not talking about Disney songs. You know, she is listening to some pretty great stuff. Mm. P.J. Harvey, Charles Bradley...
4: She's amazing. I mean, Chloe yeah. with her, her her precocious little iPod, you know, telling her dad, you know, which Elvis <laughs> song he needs to play. No, 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 dad, you got to do this one. You know, she's a, she's a, already hanging out with the old 70s stuff and uh, and then, you know, introducing Leon Bridges to her mom. And, yeah, yeah. You know, she's like she's an incredibly precocious young, young girl. You not want to make up on this song. Come on.
5: Been traveling these wide roads for so long. My heart's been full. This is a beautiful New song, honey. Ten thousand miles gone. Take me to your river. High.
4: Which, you know, it's very much how Jean-Marc planned it, because he doesn't use composers. So we are having to tell our emotive story through the licensed tracks, which is very unusual for any director to kind of know that going through, that I'm not going to use a composer and we're going to handle all these emotional beats through our, you know, through these characters. That's, I mean, so Chloe, you know, was really, she's the one that sort of was helping everybody narratively through her iPod tell that story. Well,
2: there's also a character in Sharp Objects, uh, Alice, who helps tell the narrative with music on her iPod. She's a fellow patient in the hospital uh, with Camille, the show's protagonist, they were both dealing with problems with self-harm. Alice teaches Camille to use music, particularly Led Zeppelin, as a way to escape the internal uh, distress, the pain that she's experiencing.
4: What I loved about Camille... Was that she didn't know anything about music? She gets into the hospital and she's there with this young girl that you know kind of looks at her and says, "What kind of music do you play or do you listen to?" And she's like, "I don't, I don't like music. I never really listened to music." And the girl's like jaw just falls on the floor. Can't believe it. And she's she's like, "What? No wonder you're in here, girl." And she's (laughs) like, "Well, you're in here too, girl." And she goes, "But I can get out of here." And that I love that so much that she could teach somebody older than her. She's a teenager looking at somebody in her mid-20s and saying, I can teach you how to fly out of here. You don't even have to be in here. Mm. And teaching the power of music to escape your situations. (laughs) ¶¶ That's what Led Zeppelin, you know, really signed on to was that music is a lot more than just some background thing in a restaurant or some pop act or some video. It can, it plays a hugely important role in in so many lives and if you're not familiar with it in that way and don't have that relationship, I'm hoping that Camille's character encourages everybody to kind of sit back and go, wait, I'm in this mood. I'm going to put on this record and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And you can fly off, and it will totally change mm-hmm. your mood. I think that's the importance of it.
5: I the wind see it spin. Sail away, leave the day, play it high in the sky. And will the wind won't blow. We really shouldn't go. It only got to show that you will be mad
0: by taking that stab.
3: Well, you know, i got to ask you, though, uh, Susan, so did you ever have a conversation with the Alice character and say, why do you have such expensive taste because licensing Led Zeppelin songs ain't cheap? I wondered how that worked out because they're notoriously difficult to, uh, you know, extract music from or allow their music to be used in films or, or, or TV shows.
4: You know, when jean knew that Led Zeppelin was his fantasy to be able to use it, I don't know if he ever thought this would really happen, but he put it in my hands and said, if I could find anything for Alice and Camille, this would be what it was. And I started working on that way before we started shooting. And we started the really early conversations and working with a wonderful woman over at Warner Chapel. You know, we just kept shaping the letters and the communication until it became really clear that, you know, when you look at episode three and you have that scene where Camille then turns around and also shares, you know, helps young Alice in a painful moment going, come on, let's get out of here. Mm -hmm. And she puts on thank you. If
0: the sun refused to shine I would
5: still be loving you When mountains crumble to the sea There will still be you and me
4: Any artist is going to go, that's why I spend all this time writing Mm. and making music, which isn't easy. And I think that's not like you could go to Led Zeppelin and go, here, let me give you like this huge check so we can do whatever we want, because it's, it's never going to be about that. For any artist, it's always going to be like, how do you want it? I'm sure there are a lot of commercials that offer Led Zeppelin more money than they could imagine. And they go, nope, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it really is about those artists looking at the way that this music is affecting these characters and the way that Jean-Marc takes such good care of music in terms of its authenticity about where it's coming from and feeling like, okay, and you know, for them, it's super smart because the demographics of the show, a lot of them don't, I've never heard these songs. Yeah. So they're so smart because this aerates their catalog and it helps people find them. And But more importantly, it helps people realize the power of what their music can do in a painful moment and so it wasn't really you know people think like the difficulty was just having a lot of patience and trying to put across why this was really important and they one day they just got it
3: when we return music supervisor susan jacobs tells us more about selecting the soundtrack to the hbo shows big little eyes and sharp objects she's also going to tell the story of putting together music for the film i tanya during a chaotic production period plus
2: Jim, you're going to take a trip to the desert island. What are you going to do there? Greg, I have been particularly inspired talking to Susan Jacobs. I've got a a song that is key to uh, like one, two, three, four, five movies. Wow. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ
3: Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim Dirigatis, And this week we're talking with music supervisor Susan Jacobs. In 2017, Jacobs won the first ever Emmy for music supervision for her work on the HBO miniseries Big Little Lies, directed by Jean-Marc Vallée. In that show in particular, Jacobs uh, profiled a lot of new artists. And in many ways, I think music supervisors are the new talent scouts in the music world because they're introducing millions of people to relatively unknown artists. I'm thinking of somebody like Michael Kiwanuka, whose song Cold Little Heart was a theme song to Big Little Lies. In this curation thing, it's not about whether the song is popular or not. Obviously, Led Zeppelin has a certain cachet. Michael Kiwanuka does not for a mainstream audience, certainly. So, are you kind of feeling like, oh, I don't care about cachet as much as I care about what the song is saying and how it's going to work for this, for this scene or this character or this show?
4: Yeah, it's always it's always what's going to convey the emotion that you want. Michael Kiwanuka was actually in Big Little Lies and kind of fell upwards. So that was what was such an interesting discovery was that it was sort of in a scene already and then it Mm -hmm. fell upwards into that title. But when you look at the power of what that has done for his career and Leon Bridges' career Mm -hmm. just went right back up on the charts and then you've got somebody like Sylvanasso would come down Hey, mama, won't you come
5: down? Hey, mama, won't you come
4: down? To the river to wait, to be And the acid with tumbling lights it's really exciting, and I also think that's the power of how Jean-Marc uses the music, because it's it's emotional. It isn't just, you know, it's really... He's a painter, he's a weaver, you know, he uses little bits of it here and there, so you hear the Silvanesso come down at the very beginning with the roller skating, it's really cool, but then it will keep coming around and around, and, and it, it hits that beat so that people really feel like they have a relationship with that song by the time we get to the end of the series. I think that's what, to me, makes a big difference about... How it is. And it's an, it's always about what's conveying the emotion mm-hmm. that the director wants to convey. As you know, I always tell people music is a point of view. Our job as supervisors is to make sure that everybody's understanding the different points of view that are possible. And for someone like Jean Marc, it's really working backwards from where he's trying to go with the characters because he's this is how he, this is him, you know, I'm working with him at, at more in the composer capacity. This is what we need to do here and where we're going here. And he's he's very clear about the emotions of what, what he wants to do. And there's no, nothing is in there casually.
2: I want to talk some more about your work in movies. You did the music for I, Tanya, that 2017 film that Craig Gillespie made about uh, Tanya Harding, the controversial figure skater. The haters always
5: say... Tanya, tell the truth. There's no such thing as truth. Everyone has their own truth.
2: Now, do you ever feel constricted by the time periods that you have to pick music from? Because al- although I, Tanya, takes place in the 80s and the 90s, the soundtrack's almost entirely 70s hard rock. Why was that?
4: Well, Tanya was a film that I came in fairly late on, and it was a a film that had that Craig had had cut his film using a lot of source music, and those songs are tend to be really expensive. But also, nobody wanted to be in that movie. I have to tell you, like nobody. uh, So when I walked in the door, kind of more as like we're hemorrhaging over here and we don't know how to save this film and I was super busy and going oh my gosh and I looked at the movie and I thought it was really good the first thing I realized was that we have to change the narrative about what people think about Tonya Harding Mm -hmm. and to to do that and to you know try and flip that around and so he had already known that he wanted to use a lot of 70s music which was a little odd because it really doesn't have anything to do with that period that time that you know Tanya Harding didn't happen in the 70s I mean so yeah, but that's but, kind uh, of what so...
2: formed her right
4: well, you could say that, but it really for Craig, you know this goes down to the power of music and film was that when I said to Craig, why all the seventies music, and there was a, a lot of homages already to American Hustle. I was like, mm-hmm. wow, that was already featured in American Hustle or this or that, which I which I love, you know, and 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 David O. Russell does too, you know, he he. So, you know, when you influence other directors, it's amazing. And he was like, well, I, you know, there's something really emotional and warm about those rock songs in the 70s. You're
6: in my way.
4: Yeah, we met at an ice rink where I was practicing. When you sit down and try and temp in 80s and 90s, you're right, you don't have the warmth of the scope of the sound of the 70s, so it really started with the picture. Picture first. Picture is always first. What's going to serve the picture? And so those songs ended up really being something about. It was so important on I Tanya that that music stayed warm, and that she. So that we could and had power, because otherwise you wouldn't like her. And if I tried a couple of '90s things and tried a couple of '80s things, and it was totally film didn't want it, and it made her colder. (laughs) So we really had, we worked really hard. So I already, he already had. You know, his arrow pointed in, I want 70s music. And then we just worked really, really hard to get what we wanted and to put things in there. And you're always just serving narrative and serving picture. But the most difficult thing of i was getting people to understand that this was a really important story to be told and you know we Mark Knopfler was so gracious because he had turned down the Dire Straits song Romeo and Juliet several times saying no Way that was before I came on board, and then I reached out, spent four hours writing the right letter, <laughs> sent it off, and sent him the first reel, and said, "I'm just asking you to take a look, and if you want to see the rest of it, let me know." And then I got a call from management, and send the rest, and I knew that he would understand that that was actually a really beautiful use of Romeo and Juliet. So, um, what do you like? Like me? <laughs>
6: so pretty. I'm not. You are. Mm -hmm.
5: A love struck Romeo Sing the streets a serenade
4: And it was really great, but it was getting him. And then he wrote the sweetest note and said, Thank you, Susan Jacobs. I would have never known. That was it. And he was so happy to be part of that film then. So I think it's really about communication, artist to artist, you know, what Craig's trying to do, why it's important, and why that music belongs there is a lot of it. And, you know, the same thing working on American Hustle or Silver Lining Playbook, which we had, you know, really early Alabama shakes and very, very early Alt-J. Alt-J was just a baby band Mm. at that point. It's it's so great when you realize that you're getting this great marriage of— of visuals and artists, and then also to, to see that I was saying I went to see the most amazing ELO concert. They are out there playing. Joplin is playing the most amazing shows right now, and to see 100538 Overture <laughs> live just blew blew me up. but I also I had a feeling like I bet American Hustle had a lot to do with putting <laughs> that back in the playlist because that guy's got one hit song after another. It's yeah. not like he you know, but I bet that that's the influence of film and, you you know, you kind of think, I bet that gave a lot of new life to that song because the crowd went crazy over it, crazy. Yeah, it and, wasn't
3: one of those, uh, you know, top 20 yellow, you know, greatest hits. It, it No, definitely and was he's, a deeper
4: got, cut. he's got a top 40. That, I mean, yeah. every song he plays, you can't believe, like, oh, my God, he wrote that, too, and yeah. he wrote that, too, and he wrote that, too. It's kind of amazing.
3: All right, I got one question for you. So you're the... Uh, music geek like us in terms of you know how does how does music work in the world and obviously you're a big fan of music working in film and TV besides your own projects what if you had to say to anybody give me an example of how music and audio and video can work together to create something sort of a third thing that's the greater than the sum of the parts what's your best example of that? (laughs)
4: <laughs> go see Easy Rider. Uh, uh, yeah. go, see, go see The Graduate. <laughs> and it is
5: to you, Mrs. Robinson. Jesus loves you more than you will know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God bless you, please, Mrs. Robinson. Heaven holds a place for hope.
4: I mean, those are the things that all of us strive to make The Graduate again. Midnight Cowboy, Mm -hmm. my goodness. I mean, Harry Nilsson, you know, when you have that, especially Midnight Cowboy, when you have that collaboration between composer and then an artist like Harry, I mean, all of us are trying to keep making that. (laughs) Mm. None of us have gotten there.
0: Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear words saying, only the echoes of my mind. People stopping still, I can't see their faces, only the shadows of their
5: eyes.
4: I think about Midnight Cowboy and how that soundtrack played. To make that dark and deeper and more, you know, it's amazing. And you can't even look at The Graduate without thinking about the Simon and Garfunkel soundtrack to that. Yeah. We're all trying to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, I, you know, should I have anything that ever comes close to that kind of collaboration with a solo artist? being able but also the industry was braver then i think people just took you know music played a looser role it was more you know things weren't as managed as they are now
2: Mm -hmm. i don't know i think there's some young kid falling in love with your work now who's thinking the same thing someday i want to do that (laughs) Mm -hmm. i think you're inspiring a new generation there
4: oh i hope so i hope so
2: We've been talking to Susan Jacobs, one of our favorite music supervisors. It's, uh, it's been a real pleasure, Susan. Thanks for coming on Sound Opinions.
4: Oh, great. Thank you all.
2: That wraps up our
3: interview with music supervisor Susan Jacobs, and now we want to hear from you. What's a film or television show that you think uses music really well? Give us a call at 888-859-1800 and leave your answer and tell us why.
2: was bewitched just the cast away
5: I lost that sea oh no I'm sand it on my own sandy far from home look from you remember we were shipwrecked together sand it out so the bottom home sandy yeah I'm on my mama
3: As often as possible, we like to take a trip to the desert island, pop a quarter in the desert island jukebox and play a
2: track. We cannot live without Jim. This week, it's your turn. Well, Greg, obviously after that great chat we had with Susan, uh, movies and music and the perfect pairing of the two were on my mind. I'm usually two or three years ahead of you on movies, uh, but that's only (laughs) because my wife is the editor uh, of movies at your paper. Uh, She's often bringing something home, and she had to twist my arm to watch this film that she was excited about, and I was skeptical. Nico. 1988. This is a 2017 interesting collaboration between artists in Italy and Belgium. A female director, Susanna Niccarelli, uh shot in English, starring a Danish actress, Trine Dryholm. Apparently, uh, Trine was uh, a big star in her native uh, Scandinavia, uh, began singing as a teenager. The director, Susanna and Trine, the actress, uh, spent tons of time Channeling late-era Nico. Now, Nico famously was the singer for The Velvet Underground on a few songs. On the first album, Andy Warhol shoved her down John Cale and Lou Reed's throats. Uh, It resulted in moments of brilliance. She had a long solo career. There are moments of greatness in that solo career— But by 1988, when this film is almost entirely set, uh, she was a heroin addict. She was bitter. She uh, hated the idea that she was defined all these decades later by a couple of songs that she'd done in one year in her career early on. She resented the Warhol fame. She resented the Velvet Underground. But she needed to tour, especially in Europe, these uh, sleazy punk clubs, in order to buy heroin and pay her rent. You know, I saw Nico in that era. It was not pretty. It was sad. She was a haunted woman. You would not think this is an uplifting movie. (laughs) But in many ways, it captures the soul of a really complicated artist and the music is delivered with passion by this woman who I, I don't know how she channels this one of a kind you know uh, Teutonic chanteuse mm. from the netherworld, you know Nico dies in a bike accident not long after the period in this movie ends. I'm gonna go to one of her best songs that has become a huge classic in recent years thanks to its use in another movie. These Days uh, was used with great effect by Wes Anderson in the Royal Tannenbaums. And then it started to, much like Hallelujah, started to appear in soundtracks everywhere. Mm -hmm. These Days is now ubiquitous. A fascinating song. You know, it was written by a 16-year-old Jackson Brown, who comes from the West Coast, is bumming around New York, you know, the post-Dylan folky scene hooks up with Nico romantically gives her this great song it's a song that that kind of you know is hinting at the despair in her life before any of that stuff that that happens over the next three decades that there was much to despair about I've been out walking I don't do that much talking these days, you know? Mm. Uh, It's a haunting, beautiful song. And this is the version from the movie with Trine Dryholm singing. You would think, man, it's tough to imitate Nico or better Nico. I think it's a beautiful version of the song. So these days, the Nico song from the film, Nico 1988.
0: I've been out walking. I don't do too much talking. These days I seem to think a lot about the things that I forgot to do. about my way
2: That is These Days uh, by the actress Trine Dryholm from the film Nico, 1988. you got to catch up with it, Greg. Great movie. That sounds uh,
3: spooky, Jim. And uh, speaking of spooky, uh, next week our show is Spooky Songs for
2: Halloween. It's that time of year again. We're going to play some songs that are going to creep you out. You can find every episode of Sound Opinions at soundopinions.org and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get those things. Sound Opinions was produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill.
0: And if I seem to be afraid to live the life that I have made in song
3: opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
6: Hello, this is Ryan from Portland, Oregon. Uh, I wanted to tell you about a band, a fairy treasure, that I'm just absolutely in love with right now. A band called Savila from here in Portland. Uh, three piece, uh, guitar, drums, vocals, and they have this amazing blend of, kind of Latin rhythms and some really really cool guitar sounds. It's vocals in English and vocals in Spanish. And um, they're just one of the most truly exciting bands I've seen in a long time. I saw them open for La a few months ago, and I've just been completely obsessed ever since. Uh, First record was self-released just maybe like a month ago, Uh, so give it a look, give it a listen. It's really, really amazing, and I really hope the world catches up with these guys. Uh, So yeah, check it out. Thank you.
4: Hi, this is Teresa Jones from St. Pete, Florida, and I love you guys' show, and I just wondered if you had had a chance to listen to Greta Van Fleet out of Frankenmuth, Michigan. Um, three brothers and a drummer that are uh, bringing back a new fresh outlook on classic rock and roll. Have a new uh, CD out, "Anthem of a Peaceful Army." Give it a
1: listen, and thank you for all you do. Hey, Jim and Greg, this
6: is Greg from Las Vegas. I'm
1: wondering, what do you think about the new up record? And. Super layered and, you know, I don't know, man. Anyways, you're part of my weekend. I listen with my cat, YOLO, and keep it up. Love the show. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is uh, Brad and... Louisville Square um, i kind of in the middle of the Disco and Seymour Stein episode number 668 and um, got about halfway through the Disco um, segment so I couldn't even make it through the whole episode because um, it, there, there's there's things going on in Disco that are not about the music you want to say like working class or just like you know rough Belt, middle America the images uh, and the clothing that go along with these discos people can't afford those clothes you're not, not going to relate to like the environment of what a disco might be you know I, I, I guess that's where I'm where I see the, the, the attitude of the disco demolition sort of like coming from, I think it's a negative point of view and I think it is, and it is destructive. So that, that is problematic. But at the same time, I think it, there, there needs to be a recognition that um, this, this was a genre and a form that like, just didn't connect with a lot of America. Uh, thanks for doing what you do, guys. Uh, catch you next time. See you next time. Bye. No more messages.